Hidden Gems, Episode 24, Chris and Bill's Two-Player Showdown. Welcome to Hidden Gems, a board game podcast where we review unusual, forgotten, and underappreciated board games. We're your hosts. My name is Chris. And this is Bill. Thanks for listening to our show. Bill. Hey, Chris. It's all come down to this. It has, man. I've been looking forward to this for so long. The first time you mentioned it, like, way back in October. <laughs> An epic battle. Very excited that we finally got to do this episode with playing two-player games together. I have to say, and I've said this on here before, and I just want to make sure this is clear. As much grief as I give you in our game group and on the podcast, I love playing games with you, man. I really do. I really enjoy it. And uh, this episode was a pleasure, I have to say. Well, right back at you. I was thinking absolutely the same thing, that it was just so much fun. And I'm just trying to think back to the times when I had been able to do that and play the two-player games. And it has (laughs) measured in decades now. So it was such a refreshing, warm, fun thing to do. Yeah. And I have to say, I'm excited about going through our reviews because we had some pretty epic struggles oh we did sure we will talk about tonight in the reviews that led to some pretty awesome game moments i think Mm -hmm. i think so definitely looking forward to that good to be back i'm sure if you're listening to this podcast and you're a regular listener you've probably picked up on the fact that we skipped a week and i will take full responsibility that i did a bad job of remembering to speak in the podcast that we were going to be taking a week off for the holidays to recharge for the new year a lot of us have been traveling out of town and i forgot to mention it so apologies for that but we are back on our normal two-week schedule and this will be a good jump off point into talking about christmas like i said we were off for the holidays christmas awesome time with the family so i thought we would just take a few minutes just to talk about the holiday and what you did with your families and talk about the presents did you get anything fun anything to play with how was it it was good, but I want to hear what Santa brought you first. I mean, oh, okay. uh, yeah, so tell me. I know that you're pretty excited about your list. Yeah, yeah. We did get a secret Santa surprise this year. I have to mention this. Oh, yeah. So Bill Arney came by our house to drop off a present for the kids. Bill gave my kids and I some laser tag guns. And I think you were actually maybe trying to drop it off secretly. I was trying to drop it off secretly, <laughs> and you happened to just be popping out. And I was walking out to my game room, of course, which is external to the house, as I often do. And Bill was walking down the driveway with a rat present. Mm-hmm. Yeah, truly, it was going to be secret. I was going to like <laughs> deny it forever, but I was just totally busted. Yeah, uh, that was awesome, though. My kids loved it. I loved it. They've been playing the heck out of it. Really enjoyed that. Oh, cool. For gifts this year, I'll just mention a couple of things. So, Tally and I, you know, we've been married for 16 years, and we typically don't go crazy on each other for Christmas because we have four kids, mm-hmm. and we really try to focus on them. You know, Christmas with four kids isn't necessarily cheap, so we usually don't go nuts. But a couple of years ago, I broke one of the cardinal rules of relationships and marriage where I said, "Yeah, we're not going to do anything big for each other. And then I bought her a really big gift. I got her a new espresso machine, mm-hmm. which she loves. But she kind of got mad at me because she said, you know, we said we weren't going to do, do anything. anything. Right. And then I did it. She so did. this year, it was my turn. I said we weren't going to do anything big. And Talia went really big for me this year. I'll save the biggest for last, but a couple of things that I asked for. So it's funny how <laughs> as you age, the things that you enjoy and get a lot of satisfaction out of change. Mm -hmm. Never in my wildest dreams would I ever think that I would have asked for socks, sweatpants, (laughs) and a blanket. Uh But I did this year because it's what I wanted and I love them. And I'll have to say as much grief as my kids gave me about my blanket, Mm -hmm. I never can find my blanket. Mm -hmm. And it's because... One of them always has it. <laughs> I, will, I will tell you how to fold it and put it in your lap just right when you get in your rocking sure. chair. With your warm milk your, and your nutmeg. Exactly. <laughs> so you can creep back and forth and wear your glasses in the end of your nose as you tell your stories. That's yeah. right, yeah. yeah. So I told Ty, I said, I want you to find me the biggest and the softest blanket you can mm-hmm. possibly find. And she did a great job, but my kids steal it from me all the time. So I got one of those, really enjoyed that. She also got me a new graphic novel. An absolute edition, which is... We call in our house a comic book. Comic books, right. (laughs) Picture books, as she likes to say. Mm -hmm. So DC Comics does a line of graphic novels, which they call absolute editions, which are the premier printed editions of a comic book. They're the nicest that you can really find. And she got me the Planetary graphic novel, which is a really awesome story. I'd never read it. And mainly that's because Planetary for all the comic book nerds out there, takes place as part of the Wildstorm imprint, which I don't really read a lot. But if you're familiar with the multiverse in DC, that's Earth 50 Mm -hmm. for all the comic book lovers out there. 
And I have to say that I've really been enjoying it so far. I've just gotten into it. It's like 700 pages. It's a tome. This thing is huge. Mm -hmm. It follows a group of superheroes. They refer to themselves as the archaeologists of the impossible. (laughs) And basically what they do is they unearth all of the Earth's ancient history, dating back way longer than we even realize, and uncover all this really bizarre stuff that has to do anywhere from the supernatural to ghosts to alien technology. Technology. And in unearthing all this stuff, they learn a little bit about the world and about superheroes in general. So it's a really interesting take on the superhero genre. It's called Planetary. It's really good. I'm enjoying it. That's awesome. And then last but not least, I have to mention, she bought me a PS5 for Christmas this year. Wow, boom. Which totally floored me. Was not expecting it. That was kind of like my espresso machine gift for this year. And with it came a game called Ghosts of Tsushima. Mm. Have you heard of this game I'm- before? I know you're not as much of a console gamer. I have a PS4, but it's just been a while since I've played it. Okay, so this game came out on PS4, but on the PS5 it looks amazing. It's an open world game, very much in the vein of Skyrim. Skyrim, But it feels like a mixture between Skyrim and the Batman Arkham games, Mm -hmm. I guess is the best way I could explain it. I'm just getting into it as well, but I can tell you, I'm not going to say it's the best open world game I've played yet, because I'm not through yet, although it's up there, but without a doubt. It is the most beautiful open world game ever. Wow. It is amazing. It's just picturesque. It takes place in feudal Japan. It's got a samurai theme to it. And it just looks amazing. Well, you know, Sony announced that they're doing a VR for PS5. Oh. If you could see that in VR, could you imagine? I'd sign me up for that. Yeah, 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 yeah. it'd just be crazy. I mean, I'll show it to you sometime. It's just amazing. Really quickly, I know I've been talking a lot. I want to hear about Bill's Christmas, but just to give you an idea of how the game works or what it's about if you're interested, because I highly recommend the game so far. In a nutshell, what happens is Tsushima is an island, and it gets invaded by Mongols. And the samurai are essentially wiped out, except for you. You're left for dead. They think that they've wiped everybody out, but you survive. And so you're kind of like a one-man revolution. You're moving through the islands. They refer to you as the ghost, right? Right. You're taking out encampments. You're recruiting people to help you take back the island. It's epic. The combat system, really fun. It has lots of skill trees that mm-hmm. upgrade in different ways as you progress through the game. Because the enemies get way harder as the game progresses. Solid. Check it out. If you like Breath of the Wild, if you like Skyrim, if you like Red Dead Redemption or Red Dead Revolver, you owe it to yourself to try Ghost of Tsushima. It is really, really good. That sounds cool. Yeah, I played the Fallout series way back then. Okay. So it sounds, yep. it sounds a little bit like Fallout. Yep, yep. And you can get it on PS4. Mm-hmm. You can check it out. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I definitely want to see the PS5 graphics on the TV, oh, too. I've heard awesome things phenomenal. about it and have not seen it in the store or anything. So that's cool. Yeah, I don't know how Talia got her hands on one because they were hard to get a hold of, but mm-hmm. she has ways. She's on social media groups, and she found one, so I'm very go, happy. Go Talia. How about you, Bill? How was Christmas, man? It was pretty awesome. I will talk about our living room, and actually, we're going to talk about this, too, about me getting you out of the house to play games at my house. <laughs> <laughs> got out of my cave. Out of your cave, which I had to pretend like it was burning down his house or something. It's like, Chris, you got to get out. <laughs> we didn't really share too much Christmas together because we have had a house renovation we started last March that has just drug on forever, and it has been that living room, and we have given each other gifts that go in that as part of it. They just finished up the renovation like a month ago and it was funny bringing you in there because i'm sitting here beaming with pride about how this new living room looks for me and i'm just thinking it's the coolest thing ever and you have no context because you never saw it before <laughs> <No>. <laughs> like, why aren't you thinking this is the most awesome thing it, ever? Looks, it looked great but yeah, yeah i had no idea what it looked like before oh, right the guy who built the house was a rock mason and he built a rock wall in that room that was like six or eight feet deeper into the room and on the other side of that wall he decided he was going to put a jacuzzi in his living room oh my gosh <laughs> there was two steps down to this rock floor and there was, was a full-size jacuzzi and then there was a hole in the ceiling that went up to the bedroom so when a we, hole in the, the ceiling yeah well it was a designed hole right it was an overlook so you can stand in your bedroom and look down the jacuzzi and maybe all this, this sounds stuff, like a really interesting fellow uh, definitely <laughs> absolutely and i guess we were interesting people because we actually bought it from him <laughs> you know all that stuff looked kind of cool until you ran your jacuzzi and bromine smell fills the whole house and all the all the things. So we never really ran it much. But we lived in that house for 30 years with it like that. And there's floor-to-ceiling windows that were on the other side of that rock wall that you just never could see very well from the rest of the room. 
And so when we did the renovation, we actually replaced the windows and they're probably, I don't know, eight inches shorter than they used to be, but they're still pretty much floor to ceiling. Yeah. Anyway, so that's probably the exciting part. I bought my wife a new wine fridge that's now in nice. there. That was kind of cool. And then I bought my wife a wine fridge too, and she returned it and bought shoes. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny epic fail yeah right was that for christmas it was that? yeah oh, okay swing and a miss yeah um, no my wife has it and loves it and then i bought myself a bar that i got on facebook marketplace i saw that you know do you like that bar i did yeah yeah it was like semi-circular right it's semi-semi-circular what's weird about it is it's not a wet bar so it's kind of weird to have it in your living room that is so close to your kitchen we made the new york sours it required squeezing lemons and stuff like that yep, it's just yep. so much easier to do in the kitchen so it is yeah. the jury is out on really how much we're going to use it although it has been fun sitting at bar stools in my living room kind of looking <laughs> out the window or watching tv and yeah. hanging out with people so that's anyway. good thank you the other thing i will mention is my dog Daughter is big into coupon books and experiences and so this year huh. we wrote a coupon books and she's moving to dc so in the coupon book we're gonna take her to a play to the kennedy center help her move dog sitting maybe a game night at boxcar which is a you know standard oh video. yeah i love the boxcar you're talking about here in raleigh right yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. so for those of you who don't know the boxcar is a really cool barcade mm-hmm. in downtown Raleigh that has tons of pinball machines and arcade machines. Some of them are emulator, but some of them are original cabinets and right. they have all kinds of game themed cocktails and drinks. It's a really awesome place. Truly. It is. It, it feels to me like going back in time. I love that place. Real quickly, my first experience going there, I was at a friend's, had a, several beers at a place, and was going back to find my car. And of course, in downtown Raleigh or any of the cities around here, it's tough to find parking. And so I'd parked three blocks away mm-hmm. and it started pouring. <laughs> And I actually had to go to the bathroom really bad. So I was going back, (laughs) trying to find my car. It was pouring. And then I walked in front of this place and never heard of it, ran into it. And I felt like I had stepped back in time and I yep. was in the 80s or whatever. Yep. And I was seeing all these young kids crowded around Dig Dug or yeah. you know, all these crazy things. And it was like, wow, what has just happened? That was one of the coolest things for me about it too. The first time I went, I was expecting a bunch of old washed up farts like us to be in there reliving our glory days, playing right. in arcades. And it was like teenagers and college kids. And I was like, dang. Yeah. They're onto something here. Kind of a little bit of a revival of that it know, totally arcade was. scene. It was funny because I was there around 6 or 7. I think it's 7 o'clock or something. Kids can be in there. There's some time uh, of night okay. that they run them all out. Gotcha. Yeah. So, which, which is kind of funny. Yeah, The wristband only nights. Yeah. Exactly. That's awesome. Well, glad to hear you had a good Christmas. And speaking of bars and barcades, we'll go ahead and jump into our cocktail. Oh, yeah. So, as we mentioned, Bill and I are doing two-player games, and I'll go ahead and mention right now, for this particular episode, we only did two games. We try not to do that, but we will do that from time to time and going forward when we feel like that one of the games or both of the games are on the longish side, and we want to make sure that we play them enough to feel like we're comfortable with them and we can do good reviews. And in this particular case, we are just doing two games because one of our games that we're reviewing, Victory and Glory Napoleon, is a pretty lengthy Napoleonic war game. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to be doing two reviews, but in the vein of Napoleonics, (laughs) the cocktail for tonight is a easy one very predictable could have been a napoleon but i didn't have the stuff to make it so i went with a french 75 very classic cocktail actually named after a field gun in world war one that the french used as it turns out not napoleonic right but seemed appropriate in this case so for those of you that don't know the french 75 is an ounce of gin half an ounce of lemon juice half an ounce of simple syrup shaken with ice, and then topped with champagne, three ounces, or Prosecco, or whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go a little bit cheaper. And then garnish with a lemon twist, and that's the French 75. Very well known. I'm sure you've had many in your life. I've but. had a few, but yes, it was really good. Yes, my sister-in-law made one in Fernandina Beach, Florida, that was the signature drink of a hotel right up the road that has the jasmine in it, and I ended up sleeping off the afternoon because <laughs> I had too many sitting by their pool. But yeah, it's yeah. an awesome drink. Well, Bill... First time on a two-player episode, so I've done one with Jason at this point. Done one with Cameron at this point. Mm-hmm. I guess at some point I'll miss an episode and y'all will do a two-player game episode without me. But in all those episodes, we always talk about our feelings about two-player games. Mm-hmm. Because I, I was going to say divisive. I don't think two-player games are divisive, but I think you've got a section of gamers who are really into two-player games probably because maybe they live in areas where they don't have access to gaming circles and so maybe they play with their spouse or they just prefer them and then you have some people who just want to play in a group right what is your feelings about two-player games do you enjoy them would you like to play more of them 
If I go back to my early days of gaming, I played on computers, right? I started with an Apple IIe, and I got that out of high school. Mm -hmm. And when you played with somebody else, you hot-seated games, right? And even <laughs> even for a long time after that, with the early 286 computers and 386 computers, didn't really have enough horsepower to have real-time games. So they would yeah. be turn-based games, and you would get up, and the other person would sit down. And I actually, I love those. There's Empire Deluxe, Perfect General, Global Conquest. I used to play with Devin. I mean, they're they're just <laughs> to me these are just classic games where the computer's handling everything that goes on in the background. So I absolutely loved it then. Here in the middle, I really have mixed emotions because mm -hmm. it is really conflict oriented. It's absolutely me against you. Yep. And I would say I've kind of avoided them partly because I think my kids are not conflict oriented and I just haven't been in circles where people do that. And, and I will also say aging, I get kind of less competitive about mm -hmm. things. So yeah. I, I'm just, I don't have to win anymore. Before I was just like, I'm going to, I'm going to win this <laughs> and it's a badge of honor. And I, I just don't have that urge anymore. Yeah. With all that said, I absolutely love the games we played together. Yeah, yeah. So I would say yes and no all at the same time. It would just all depend. I'm kind of similar. I don't dislike two-player games. Like I said, I enjoyed playing them with you. I enjoyed playing them in the past. Do I gravitate towards multiplayer games? Yes. Yeah, I would absolutely um, say that. I, I definitely do. If I had a choice of just calling up one of my buddies and being like, hey, you want to play a two-player game? Or if I could get more people, I usually always lean towards more people. Just oh, yeah. Normally, unless I get an inch to play Sekigahara or something like that. Mm-hmm. That's just my inclination. And I agree, too, with your sentiment. And I said it kind of joking on a previous episode. I said something along the lines of, they're mentally and emotionally draining and taxing because when you lose in a two-player game, mm -hmm. it just stings more. You know what I mean? <laughs> so true. Because when you lose in a five-player game, uh -huh. you lost, but three other people lost. And like, well, y'all suckers lost, too. You know, right, and it right. feels better because you're not the only loser. That is so true. When you lose in a two-player game, you are the loser. Right. <laughs> you know? Yep. And you were having fun, but you know what I mean? You get more emotionally invested in them, and I think that's what you were kind of hinting at when you were talking about that competitiveness of two-player games. Right. Because you feel the urge more to win. Because you don't want to be the only loser. At least that's how I kind of think about it. Yeah. That makes sense. No, it's true. And for me, just to be complicated is I will have the guilt complex of winning even if I win sometimes. <laughs> right. Like, right. Especially when I'm playing with my because I say, like, oh, God, they feel so bad and whatever. But yep, yes. Yep. So, yeah. Yeah. Interesting dynamic. Well, thanks for sharing your feelings on two-player games, Bill. Yeah, that was cool. And uh, I'm chomping at the bits to get on these and talk about it. I'm very interested to hear what you have to say about both of these games, to be totally honest. I'm, and I'm the same way about you. I'm... I'm Dying to hear what your number scores are at the end and yep. your final thoughts. Yep, yep. All right, well, let's get into the games. Awesome. Legends tell of Adar, a Babylonian king with the uncanny ability to cheat death. Adar became king at a young age and frequently neglected his royal duties to indulge in games. His frustrated advisors eventually decided that it would be in the best interest of Babylon if their king was taken by the death god, too. One morning, Adar came upon two spirits disguised as young women, playing a game with sandstone tiles on a grid scratched in the earth. The spirits, who had a score to settle with, too, offered to reveal the secrets of Epigo. Sin, the sun spirit, explained the opposing forces at work and how each tile could make others move. Shamash, the moon spirit, showed Adar how to anticipate his adversary's tactics. That night, Adar's wine was poisoned and two came calling. Fortunately for Adar, he knew that everyone taken before their time had a right to challenge two to a game of skill in exchange for life. Two conceded the truth in this, but warned Adar that he knew every game in existence and had never lost a challenge. Adar challenged two to Epigo using the new rules the spirits had taught him. Two was unable to best the young king, and the victorious Adar was returned to life. That's a cool little story. <laughs> right? I hadn't read that until we actually recorded the episode tonight. Oh, that's fun. For such a straightforward game, there's a lot of story there to it. Yeah, is, is that Egyptian? I have no idea. Oh, well, actually, no, it said Babylonian. Babylonian, okay. Babylonian, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's fun. Pretty cool, yeah. yeah. So, Epigo... Published in 2011 by Masquerade Games. Mm -hmm. At the time of this recording, its BGG ranking is 5,409. <laughs> Designers of this game are Chris Gosselin and Chris Cruder. At the time of this recording, this is their only notable design. 
So I haven't been talking as much lately about where I heard about games because I started to sound very redundant <laughs> <laughs> about hearing about stuff on the Dice Tower, which I normally do. So I only mention it now if it's something different from that, something mm-hmm. noteworthy. And I've mentioned this a few times, but I will continue to mention this because I'm a big advocate for this list. So this was a game that I heard about on Ryan Metzler's Top 100 Games of All Time, which you can easily YouTube. Mm-hmm. If you search that up, it's a list from 2013. This list is just loaded with gym games, okay? Just check it out if you haven't. It's really great. All right, brief rule summary for Epigo. In simplest terms, Epigo is an abstract strategy game of programming and anticipation. The game takes place on a grid of squares arranged in somewhat of a diamond-shaped configuration. On this board, each player controls a set of square-shaped epigons, which are basically cardboard chits, numbered 1 to 7. Each player will be sliding their epigons around on the board in an attempt to push their opponent's epigons off of the board. The first player to push three of their opponent's epigons off the board wins the game. Turns are very simple in a game of epigo. In addition to their seven square epigons numbered one to seven, the players also have a corresponding set of order tiles also numbered one to seven. In addition to the number, each order tile has two arrows on it pointing in the same direction. Each round, the players will take their set of order tiles and select three of those seven order tiles to play that round. They will place them one on top of the other, and this is the order in which they will move during the round. In addition, the players will also rotate those tiles to have the arrows facing in different directions depending on the direction in which they want the corresponding epigon to move. So for example, if I play the number three order tile and I have the arrows on the order tile facing to the right, the number three epigon will slide one space to the right. Pretty simple. As I mentioned earlier, each player will select three order tiles, which is essentially their program. And then once both players are ready, they will both simultaneously reveal their first order. Whoever plays the higher number moves first with the other player then following. If the players play the same number, however, they cancel out and nothing happens. As I mentioned before, when a player plays a number, that corresponding epigon will slide in the directions that the arrow state. But what if there is a tile in that neighboring space? That player can push that neighboring epigon and any other epigons adjacent to the pushed epigon in that direction as long as the pusher's strength exceeds the pushed player's strength. Pushing strength is simply determined by counting each player's pieces in the line starting with the pusher. If the number of pushed player pieces ever exceed the pusher's number of pieces, a push will not occur. It is important to note that the number value printed on the epigons has nothing to do with whether a push occurs or not. It's just the number of tiles in the row. Players will continue on in this way until one player has captured three of their opponent's pieces, winning the game. I should also quickly mention, if you accidentally slide or push yourself off of the board, Bill, (laughs) that that counts against you and your opponent gets credit for the elimination. And that's generally how you play Epigo. I just couldn't resist the urge to get that little jab (laughs) You're you're proud of that, aren't you? (laughs) All right. So if I didn't make it clear from the rules, Epigo is very much an abstract strategy game. If you look at the board set up on the table, you look at it, you can immediately recognize this is an abstract game. However, according to many people, including myself and BGG, abstract games by definition generally, not always, but generally have little to no luck or random elements. However, in this game, the programming of your three actions and then the simultaneous reveal of them to your opponent is kind of a random element somewhat. So my question to you would be, do you agree with that? And how did you feel about it? How it played in the game? <laughs> I would say absolutely not. <laughs> because there's a Really? Hu- yes, because there's a human deciding the other side of that what's going into there. There isn't a dice roll. There isn't a card you're choosing. We both have the same numbers, one to seven. We're both evaluating the board, what we're going to do, and we're choosing the three cards we put out. Yes, it might come as a surprise to me what you play, but there's absolutely not random because you specifically chose that as oh, okay. a... As this is, is going to be fun. Okay. <laughs> right. So I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to sure. let you continue because I want you to talk first, uh-huh. but I just want to ask you a question. Sure. Do you consider rock, paper, scissors to be a game of luck or skill? Do you think rock, paper, scissors has random elements? Yes. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Do you think chess is random? Not at all. 
Chess is entirely deterministic. I mean, I guess this is kind of going to get down in the crux of this play. Yeah, I say we just go there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because when you're looking to push somebody else off the board, Mm -hmm. one of the rules that is certainly important to this is if you ended up playing the same number, you cancel each other out. And if you end up having one of your pieces close to the side of the board or, or close to going out or feeling like if they get pushed any further to the side, you're losing a strategic advantage, that presents itself as a pretty obvious move that the other player is going to do. And one of your counters is to play that number <laughs> so that they don't sure. move. And then you play a different number to maybe move the piece out of it that would have pushed But there's it. no guarantee that I'm going to play that number. Oh, you're absolutely right. So to me... And that's the rock, paper, scissors element that I'm talking uh, about. True, but I think it's... Is, is it... Does it just feel that way because it's coming out simultaneously? No, I think it is that way. I mean, rock, paper, scissors is simultaneous. One, two, three, shoot. Right. Right. So I'm going to back up just a minute if people are confused. I think <laughs> we need to talk about this because this is probably the most important thing about right. this game. But I just want to make sure it's clear. So let's say I have Bill's Epigon on the edge of the board. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it is a three. And my epigon is next to him, and it is a six. And if I push to the left, I will push his piece off the board. Right. Well, what can Bill do about that? Well, you might be thinking he can't stop it because you have the six, and the six moves before the three. And that's true, but if Bill plays his six first in anticipation of me also playing a six, thinking that I'm going to play my six to push him off, they cancel out, and then the sixes don't move. However, if I think that he's thinking that, then I play a different number, he plays six, moves his six on the board somewhere else, and then I play my six next and then push him off. So am I going to play the six first or am I going to play it second? Right? That's that rock, paper, scissors that I'm talking about. One, two, three, shoot. Am I going to play the six first or am I going to play it second? Yeah. Am I going to play it third even maybe? You're maneuvering to try to get into a good position to push your opponent off, but once you've got your opponent on the edge... I would argue that if you're a, well, not argue, I declare that if your opponent always guesses right, you'll never be able to push them off. You can't ever guarantee it. You can hope that you do, right? but you can't guarantee it. So what do you say to that? I agree 100% with everything that you say. I guess I have a trouble with the word random because you were trying to be intuitive or see what the other person is going to play or learn something of their style while they're playing. Yeah. I did look around at other reviews and that was one somebody's comment is it is like playing rock, paper, scissors over and over and over again and that was their con to it. Right. And I certainly feel that in this game. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of that because we <laughs> it was absolutely funny. In one of the games that we played, how many numbers in a row we played the exact same number. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right. So it got to be the point of being hysterical. And you know, uh, it's funny that you say hysterical because I will say one of the pros of this game, because mm-hmm. I don't want it to sound like I'm being negative right off the bat because I think there are good things to this game. We laughed a ton in this game. Yeah. yeah. And I think the game is funny mm-hmm. because this game constantly presents you with situations where mm-hmm. both of you know exactly what the other person is thinking about. Right. And it's funny. And you're trying to decide which way do I go to avoid death or which way do I go to try to ensure my opponent's death and I push them off the edge of the board. And it's funny because you start to enter into that realm of I know that you know that I know that you know. No, right. right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And you're right. I guess the question before us today is how long can that dynamic sustain a game? Right, right, exactly. (laughs) Which this game, on the box, it says 15 to 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. And that's probably accurate, I think. Right. It's a quick playing game for sure. I will say also that I did really enjoy the subtle maneuvering that occurs during the game to get yourself into a position to where you can score a point. Right. So we've been talking a lot about pushing people off the edge of the board, but people just don't start on the edge of the board. Right, you kind of have to maneuver your epigons around pushing yourself and them pushing long lines of epigons to where you get your opponent into a position where they don't necessarily want to be. Right now, once they're there, can you get them off? That's where the rock, paper, scissors comes in. But there is a lot of interesting maneuvering that occurs in between those moments. And I will confess that I feel like you had that strategic part of the game down way better than I did because I felt like the games that we played I often felt like I was on defense that you were strategically in a better position along the wall but what was also interesting Mm -hmm. 
is I almost call it fencing, right? Yeah. <laughs> that if that you can kind of dodge parry or whatever, and as they attack, they leave themselves vulnerable sometimes yep. to the, a counterattack, which is yep. If you go to push and they move out of the way, now you're on the edge. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Which was a very cool component, but yeah. it now leads to the question of how satisfying was it that you guessed right? Right. <laughs> so I will say one of the things that I did enjoy and was a interesting self reflection part of this was the thinking ahead two or three moves and then how quickly the branching happens when you think okay if I play a four and he plays a three (laughs) this is what the board looks like yeah and it just ends up being exponential right as far as how do you plan those things so that became difficult to me after a while and I will say as I'm getting older since we've talked about that I know that I'm much less better at that when you play chess you move your knight from one place to another the board kind of stays the same and there isn't that many things i guess that change in the board after the one move right it's kind of like you're playing three moves at once i mean you're choosing three moves at one time they execute in an order but yeah you're kind of making a decision about three pieces at one time instead of one piece at one time like in chess if that is kind of what you mean yes it's it's a geometric progression versus linear or something as you're trying to do it so uh I, i just i found that really difficult so i'll ask one last question do you think that you could play somebody who was really good at this game that could beat you regularly? I think the only scenario I can imagine where that could happen is if you're playing with somebody who has an uncanny ability at reading somebody. Mm-hmm. Now, I do know people like that. I play games with some people who are really good at poker and are really good at just getting in your head and knowing what you're thinking. And I think that that's a skill for some people. But I think for most people, this game is one, two, three, shoot. All right, let's move into final thoughts on this one. Bill, why don't you go first? Okay. It was fun playing with you, Chris. I really enjoyed it. (laughs) But there were moments during it that I was asking myself, am I really having fun (laughs) right now? And I will say, even at the end of the first game, when you knocked off my piece, I'd forgotten we only played to three, but it was an actual relief that we knocked off my third piece. It was like, (laughs) man, the tension of dodging back and forth on the edge to get it out was just killing me. With all that said, I saw somebody talking about it online. They said it's a good game. It's a game that I would never ask to play. That mm-hmm. But if somebody pulled it out, I would play and I think I would have fun. Mm-hmm. And I kind of agree with that. I'm not sure it's one I would necessarily want in my collection. Okay. <laughs> but I would absolutely play it if somebody pulled it out. With that, I would think by our numbering system, that would be a three. Okay. So anyway, but I did enjoy playing it. Awesome. Well, that's actually a good segue. We do this every few episodes, and I've been trying to be a little bit better about it lately as we (laughs) gain new listeners to just quickly review our rating scale. So on Hidden Gems, we rate on a 1 to 6 scale, 1 being the lowest, 6 being the highest. If we give a game a 1, that means that we think the game is bad, and we think it's bad because we think that something is mechanically wrong with the game. There's some sort of mechanism in play that makes the game, in our opinion, unplayable. A two, there's nothing necessarily wrong with the game from a design standpoint. We just hate the game. We just don't enjoy it. A three game for us is what we call the meh game. That's what Bill just said. It's not bad necessarily, but it's not really what we're looking for. It doesn't really excite us. It's just okay, which is pretty much what Bill was just saying. Four is a good game. This is where we cross the line from games where I will get rid of a game at a three to where I'll keep a game at a four. This is a good game. We enjoy it. We wouldn't turn down a play of it. It's fun. A five is an excellent game. Game is above average. We really enjoy the game. Always kind of looking to get it on the table again. Try it. Play it some more. We enjoy it. And then a six. These are our favorite games. These are games that we love. We would never turn down a play of. Just really enjoy these games. That's our numbering scale. All right. Me for Epigo. I don't think it's any secret if you've been listening to this podcast for a while. I think you probably are getting a sense for the kind of games that I like and the kind of games that I don't particularly enjoy. And I've said on here before that I know that you know that I know that you know type of games, rock, paper, scissors, guessing games. I just don't like them personally. That doesn't mean that I necessarily think that that mechanism is a bad mechanism. I think there are a lot of people that enjoy games like that. And I would say that if you do like games like that, you should play this game. I don't think the game is bad from a design standpoint. I could see people really enjoying this game, but for me, it's just meh. I just didn't get a lot out of it. I found that as I played this game more with you, my turns were getting shorter and shorter and shorter. 
And that wasn't because I felt like I was necessarily understanding it better. It was just because I was coming to the realization that what I was struggling over earlier just didn't matter. (laughs) I was thinking, well, if I play the five before the three and he plays the three first and then he plays this, then I'll push him. But if I play this before this, and then I just kind of realized, just pick a sequence, right? I I can't figure out what Bill's going to do here. I know what his options are. And he may do this, or he may do this, or sometimes he may do a third thing. And I just pick one that makes sense and hope. And that's kind of where I was in this game. And for me, that's just not really what I'm looking for. So I'm giving the game a three. It's just okay. Hey, wow, look, we agreed. We agreed. <laughs> that's we crazy. Agreed on yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. With games like this, you have to give it a caveat that I know there are people out there that like it. Yeah. I see its merits. I could see how people would enjoy it. But for me, hmm. I'm going to let this one go. Okay. Well, if it sounds interesting to you, this is the kind of game that you're into. This is the kind of mechanisms you enjoy. This game is a bit on the rarer side, unfortunately. Like I mentioned, it came out in 2011. There are no copies on Noble Knight at this time. Had trouble finding it online, but there are six copies on BGG at very reasonable prices. I think I saw one as low as $6. So you can find it, although it's becoming quite rare. So if you're interested, you might want to try to pick it up sooner rather than later. Very cool. All right. Those are our thoughts on Epigo. Victory and glory, Napoleon. Allows the players to relive the entire Napoleonic Wars in one game session. One player will take the role of France in her attempt to unite the continent of Europe with her powerful military led by one of history's most restless minds. A genius who would reform Europe's tired political, economic, and social structures while fighting a series of wars against those who resisted this change. The other player will take the role of Great Britain as she struggled to oppose the French domination of the continent by cobbling together a series of alliances with other great powers. Great Britain used her thriving economy and domination of the seas to blockade France while subsidizing the war effort against France. All right. Victory and Glory, Napoleon. Published in 2017 by Forbidden Games. I will make a quick note here before we go forward that this game is a... I won't say a reprint, but it's a reworking of sorts of a much older game called Napoleon in Europe. So Glenn Drover, the designer of this game, designed Napoleon in Europe many years ago, and it's a pretty popular older war game that's very much a grail game now. They're selling on BGG for like two, three hundred dollars. And this game was billed as the second edition or the new edition of Napoleon in Europe. However, if you look in BGG, it's actually not listed as a re-implementation of Napoleon in Europe. And that's because most people consider this to be a very different game. It plays very, very differently, which was a little bit disappointing. That's the whole reason I backed this game on Kickstarter was because I had heard Napoleon in Europe was very good. And I had heard that on the Discriminating Gamer YouTube show. Cody on the Discriminating Gamer loves war games. He loves Napoleon in Europe. It came on Kickstarter. I was like, sweet, I'm back in this. I want to play Napoleon in Europe. But apparently this game is quite different. So just know that, okay? At the time of this recording, its BGG ranking is 7,497. As I mentioned before, the designer of this game is Glenn Drover. If you don't know who Glenn Drover is, he's a great designer. He does a lot of war games, but you might also know him from Empire's Age of Discovery or Age of Empires 3, the board game, which is an awesome game. Awesome game. Some of his more recent titles, if you've gotten into the hobby more recently that you may have heard of, Raccoon Tycoon, Railroad Rivals, and Lizard Wizard (laughs) are some of his more notable recent designs. And then also he is a co-designer of Railways of the World with Martin Wallace, which is another great game. All right, brief rule summary for Victory and Glory, Napoleon. Victory and Glory, Napoleon is a two-player card-driven war game on a grand scale. The players take control of either Napoleon's powerful French army or Great Britain and their many allies in an attempt to control Europe during the Napoleonic Wars. The game takes place over three eras, and each era is divided into three rounds of play. Each round, the players will draw ten cards from a shared era deck and place six of those ten cards to the table. So that's 108 total cards played between the two players. Okay, so this is not a short game. It can be on the long side. 
any unplayed cards enter the discard pile and will be shuffled back into the mix during the third and final round of each era. That's important to understand. Over the course of each era, players are trying to score points primarily in one of three ways. By responsibly managing their economy, by having the most influence in influential European countries, and by winning military campaigns. All of these scoring objectives are accomplished through the play of each player's cards. Most cards have two pieces of information on them, the body text and the bottom text. The body text is some kind of powerful effect that will, for example, add influence to named countries or gain you additional military units, among many other things. So why would you ever use the secondary, less useful bottom text? Well, the body text may not be eligible to help you because it's a France or a Britain-specific card, for example. So if a card says, France does this, and you're Britain, you cannot use that effect for yourself. But you may still feel compelled to play the card for its less helpful bottom text to ensure that it doesn't end up in your opponent's hand when the discards get shuffled back into the deck in the final round of each era. Because if your opponent gets that card, it may be disastrous for you. So let's go through each of the different scoring objectives. Economy is important because this is what supports your military. At the end of each era, each player will look at their economy score and from it subtract the number of units in their active military, either British or French units only, no allies. If this number is positive, then the player will score those as positive points. If the number is negative, however, the player will lose that number of points. And just in case I wasn't clear, one of the things that cards can do in this game is positively and or negatively impact players' economies based on the card played. Next is influence. So influence is simply represented by the number of cubes each player has in a corresponding country. At the end of each era, each country will score the majority influence holder a differing number of points depending upon the era that the players are currently in and the country that is scoring. Finally, come campaigns. This is a war game after all. So campaigns are where the players will commit their troops to different battles that occur in all different parts of Europe. When a player plays a campaign card to start a battle, the other player must first determine how many and which type of units they want to commit and place them face down on the table. Then the player that played the campaign card will determine which units they want to commit. The units are then revealed and the strength of each army is determined based on the individual strength of each unit, plus additional points for unique types of units, plus additional points for the player's leadership and tactics rating, which again is influenced by the play of different cards. It's important to note that the player who didn't initially play the campaign card gets the card in front of them, and as one of their card plays during a round, they can kick the card back to their opponent, initiating another round of playing troops to that campaign. Campaigns are resolved at the end of each era, with the winner gaining victory points and other benefits, such as influence, while the loser has some kind of penalty or, in some cases, maybe a minor benefit. More on this later. Play continues through all three eras, with the winner of the game being the player with the most victory points. That's generally how you play Victory and Glory, Napoleon. That's awesome. How was that? That was pretty good. It's funny, you look at this box, you look how epic it looks on the table, and you think, this is going to have an ocean of rules. And it (laughs) it really doesn't. It really doesn't. It's pretty straightforward. I will say that's one of the nice things about it. And I really hit most of the rules. I mean, I didn't cover everything. There's a lot that I didn't, but... In Struggle of Empires, when we reviewed that by Martin Wallace, I left out a ton. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because that would have been like 15 minutes of a rules explanation, which nobody wants to listen to. Right. But that's 80% of it, what I just talked about. It's a pretty streamlined, card-driven game, Mm -hmm. for sure. All right, so I think a really good lead-in question for this particular game is, and I'll preface this by saying that I don't consider myself to be an advanced war gamer by any means. I've definitely played a good number over the years, but I'm not an exclusive hardcore war gamer. I've played Twilight Struggle. I played Sega Gahar. I played Memoir 44. But the coin series and all that, I really haven't delved into that degree of complexity. However, despite my limited experience... I think the mark of a good war game is if it is able to capture the feeling of the conflict that it's trying to simulate. I think Twilight Struggle would be a good example of this. It captures the Cold War pretty well, in my opinion. So my question to you, how well do you think this game did at capturing the feeling of the Napoleonic Wars? 
For me, I think it absolutely nailed it. It was hysterical when you put uh, a cube in either hand and we were kind of randomly going to decide who's going to be who at first, right? And I picked <laughs> it and I was Napoleon the, the first French. time. The French. Yeah. Right. Uh, the French the first time. And I was like, holy crap, what's going to happen now? <laughs> because We know uh, how this ends. You, yeah. We know how this ends. It's like watching the Titanic, right? <laughs> that the ship's going to go down. With that said, I want to share this in data circles. There's a really famous way to present data that's supposedly the best chart ever created. Have you ever heard of this? Uh, never. Supposedly it's made by Menard. And I'm going to hand this over to you because this makes great podcast listening to oh, show yeah. a chart. Show me this <laughs> chart, chart that everybody can see. What this chart shows is Napoleon's march into Russia that shows six different pieces of data all on the same graph. And basically it shows a timeline of Napoleon's march into Russia. Russia, yeah. where he was at particular points in time. The thickness of the line going in there is how many people he had in his army, and okay. that's the diminishing of his army. That makes sense. The bottom line is the temperature <laughs> that's outside <laughs> as he's going on as they're marking in the middle of the winter. It's a super interesting chart when you look at it, but you just see the wheels coming this off of... This is cool. Yeah. And it's a cool chart. I'll admit, sometimes you, you talk about stuff and I'm like, what? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I think this makes total sense. I will say that the game captures this chart really well. It absolutely does. Yeah, I agree with you. This game is the Napoleonic War. In the first era of the game, France is powerful, and you feel it, mostly based on the fact of their leadership and tactics rating. They don't necessarily have a lot more units, but their leadership and tactics, which is tacked onto their battle strength, is so huge, and that's mostly due to Napoleon, that you just can't beat them, really. They're just so strong. But as the game progresses... And you enter into that third era, and there are cards in the game that say Russian winter or, (laughs) you know, different historical things that are alluded to like any good card-driven game should. And you feel it just falling apart all around you as Napoleon and the French army, and you're just trying to hold it together. And it's funny, in our games, it always seemed to come down to Waterloo, which, again, is hilarious, right, given what you know about Napoleonic Wars. But, yeah, just really cool. Going into it without knowing how that was going to play out, because, you know, neither one of us had really seen the cards, right? We didn't know what was going to come out of the deck. We had no clue. Yeah, how the errors were going to play out. You knew the wheels were going to come off at some point. And to me, I will mark this as one of the quintessential gaming moments in my life kind of thing. (laughs) Just just watching these cards come out and kind of having these holy crap moments (laughs) as as I'm watching. I lose what? (laughs) That's not right. (laughs) And then again, it is absolutely right in the theme of the game so it was absolutely fun yeah the flow of the game very much napoleonic and we mentioned it too but i just again we'll mention that the cards are very historically accurate all the campaigns are actual battles and campaigns that occurred they make sense Mm -hmm. the card plays the assassination cards the treaty cards all that come together in the game to make an experience that makes sense right for napoleonic war it just makes sense. So it sounds like that's a pro for us. What else did you like about this game, Bill? The first thing I will say is just how impressive it looks on the table. Everything <laughs> this is a really big boards, and it just swallows the table. It's huge. It's huge. And when you're looking at it, especially when you're thinking about it from a Napoleonic game, you're thinking about he's building an empire, right? And you mm-hmm. just see these distances here. Yep. And so as far as just giving you the feel that you're trying to conquer an empire, I thought that part had just an awesome effect. And, yeah. and just the art I thought was beautiful. And yeah. It looks like an old world map, like a leather map that you would find in an old library or something. Uh, it looks great. The board is big. You could maybe argue it's too big. I mean, is anything ever too big? I, I will say if you play this game, you need to have a large table. It's three boards laid out side by side. This is a five-foot table that we play on, and it has a maybe three-inch border on each side, and it takes it all the way to the end. Yeah, right? all the way to the end. Yeah, it's a big board. But I, I did enjoy the presentation, and I will say... When you get your units out there, it is nice to have big countries because those cardboard chips that represent your units, they take up space. I think if the board was a lot smaller, it would be a little too cramped, but it felt about right, and it kind of had that war room feel to it. I did like that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I will say one thing I really enjoyed about this game was the card play. Yeah. Just really cool, the decision of, do I use cards that only benefit me on their main text and let these other cards slip back into the discard that might benefit my opponent. And that's important to note, and this may not have been clear from the rules, just because you don't play a card 
doesn't mean that your opponent will get it. It will get shuffled back in in the last round, and you might draw it again. Or there are like three cards left over that nobody gets dealt back. So you can gamble there a little bit and hope your opponent doesn't get it. But you see as you play the game and you're holding these cards, you're like, man, Bill just can't have that card, right? Because if he gets that, he'll ruin everything I'm trying to do. So you begrudgingly play it for a piddly effect, or in some cases in the third era, a negative effect where mm-hmm. you actually hurt yourself a little bit to prevent yourself from being hurt right. a losing, ton. Losing influence, yeah. Right. I think the decision space there was just delicious, honestly. Yeah. Oh, I like that. The idea that you're playing that 6 out of 10, and you're picking the order, which is also a great decision point to be clever, as you like to say, and the pain, especially in the early times when you're playing Great Britain, everything on your cards there kind of sucked because it's all pro-French. Right, I like right. the fact that you're drawing from the same common deck. Right? Yes, and so, I agree. I like that we didn't have our own decks. Yes, exactly. Just the fact that you have to decide that early on that you might see this card again in your opponent's hand was just awesome. Yeah. Another thing I'll say, kind of harkening back when we were talking about the rules, you can teach this game in 30 minutes or mm-hmm. less, probably even less. And mm-hmm. the fact that you could have it on your shelf and you say, you know what, let's play this again, and you could refresh yourself yeah. on it in just a few minutes... I think that's just a real pro for a game that's like this. Yeah. That has this epic feel to it. I I agree with you. This game, because it's card-driven, it's a CDG, it reminded me very much of Twilight Struggle, but this is a very streamlined version of that style of game. And I would say that if you're a gamer that enjoys the occasional war game, especially CDGs, you will probably like this game. I will also say, however, if you're a hardcore war gamer and all you do is play war games and you play these really advanced GMT games or squad leader, mm-hmm. this may not have the level of complexity that you're probably looking for in a war game. It might, but what I'm saying is is that this one is a little bit on the lighter end of the war spectrum and would be a good entry point, I think, for people, but if you've played a lot of war games... It may not be what you're looking for. I think it's just worth stating. I have a question for you. I think there's basically three ways you make points. Yes. There's one on the economy. There's Mm -hmm. one on winning campaigns. And then there's the countries. How do you felt like that balanced out over the course of the game? (laughs) I really enjoyed this. So as you know, everybody knows I say multiple paths to victory. I like it when a game presents me with different opportunities at scoring points. I will say I think this game did a pretty good job at it. I definitely think in different eras of the game, different point scoring strategies are more viable. And we'll probably get into this a little bit more when we talk about military and combat. But I will say, especially in the last play we had of this, I experimented a little bit with economy because I was playing with the French and I knew the inevitable French winter was coming and I already was kind of struggling a little bit with my military. And I just started letting my guys get offed and boosting my economy to score points that way. And I scored a lot of points that way. You definitely Um, did. You played the Russian winter on yourself. I did, mostly because I just didn't have any other good options in my hand. And I was like, well, I'm just going to kill my own guys off because it was a way to score points. I thought that was interesting and clever. I think the struggle with the influence and the way you play the cards was good. I don't know. I enjoyed that. felt like it was pretty balanced. I did too. I have some concern that it may be too leveling in a certain way because it's an automatic trade-off, I guess. If you don't play the influence here, you get something else or something like that. And how much of that is really my decision being clever or are we just turning levers and behind the scenes, you you, you turn one to the right, the one over here goes left and it goes up. I don't think it's necessarily that way, but it has a little bit of a feel of that to me. I agree with you. I would describe this game as a game of subtlety. Yeah. I think within the milieu of all of these cards and all of these ways to score points and all this fighting i agree with you i think victory is where you got just ahead in those little areas through the play of you picked the right card or you chose the right time to play that body text and yeah i think there's subtlety there yeah absolutely well you just mentioned the war yeah tell me how you like how the campaigns resolved did you like how those were initiated and the swapping back and forth Yeah, I thought this was really interesting. And to be totally honest, I would say that this was one of the parts of this game that I think if we play it more, we'll appreciate it more. Because I was appreciating it more in our subsequent plays. And I feel like we were just kind of scratching the surface Mm -hmm. of how to do this intelligently. Because combat in this game, if it wasn't clear from the rules, is very deterministic. There are no dice rolls. There's no card flipping. There's no randomness. Except for the fact that there's a little bit of a fog of war element to the combat. 
Mm-hmm. The initiator of the combat has the advantage, and they should because they played the card, of getting to see how many troops that opponent is going to commit to that battle. So they know what they... Well, I was going to say they know what they have to beat, but they don't necessarily know what they have to beat because they don't see the values yet, but they know how many chits they committed. Right, and each one of these chits can be one to four. One to four, right. And so you kind of get into a ballpark area of where you kind of know how many you think you need to commit to be ahead. Mm -hmm. But I think that there is room for shenanigans there that I think we were just scratching the surface of, and I wish I'd executed a little bit more. So for example, let's say you play a campaign, and I have a bunch of ones in my military, and I commit like four chits face down, but they're all ones. Right. And then I flip them, and I force you to commit a stronger force than you really needed to. Right. And then I go and attack somewhere else because now you're weak because I made you overcommit, so to speak. So I think that there's potential for a clever play there that we were just scratching the surface of. Yes, I thought about that a few times and I think even tried to do that. But what is so interesting in the balance effect where France is strong at the beginning mm-hmm. and there's just a small window where that really works well. Era two. Right, exactly. Yeah. I wish it was more viable over the whole game, but I agree with you. That really only happens in Era 2. Well, some good things here, I think, we've been talking about. So, what did you not like about the game, Bill? Anything? It may be, and I'm not 100% convinced of this. Actually, I think I'm 95% convinced of this, but it's a big stage of gray, that the game is biased toward Great Britain. Yes. That the French will have a hard time through it all. What I don't know is how much of a con that really is to me. Because if we decided, hey, that's true, Napoleon comes into this at a disadvantage, which is historically true, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. I don't know if that would keep me from wanting to play it again. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think I agree with that as well. And I will say, I don't always do this, but I did go in the BGG forums and the ratings and the scores. And there are many people in there. Mm-hmm. who say that they feel like the game is way in Britain's favor. It's very hard for France to win this game. And the reason for that, and I think this is worth mentioning, there are a couple of reasons. So first, at the start of the game, when campaigns are fought in the first era, the loser of that campaign, which is almost always Britain, because France is super powerful in the first era, as they should be, the loser of those campaigns actually get a positive benefit. They gain leadership, right? which is good. In the third era, where France is dying and (laughs) struggling and Great Britain and its allies are really starting to hit their stride, the penalties for losing are like lose two units and lose two influence. I mean, it's punishing as heck It is when you lose campaigns in the third era. And France is going to lose the majority, if not all, of the campaigns in the third era. That really makes you feel like you've got your back against the wall as France. And then the other thing is... The secondary effects in the cards are killer for France. In the first era, if you choose the bottom text, you usually get a minor benefit, but it's a benefit. But in the third era, if you want to try to cancel the body text and play the bottom text, it usually means you lose something. Which again, France is usually doing that instead of Britain. Or you gain a military unit, which is absolutely not, not what you want to do. Right, right? Exactly. you can't win, right? It's mm. yeah. I think there are just some things that went into the design choice that maybe they could have been play tested a little bit better. I will say from a gameplay point of view in France, when you have the 10 cards and you're looking at them, so many of them are Great Britain cards and or a lot of campaigns are happening in that third era yeah. that it almost decides 100% for you what six cards you're going to play. And yeah. almost at that point in time, it doesn't matter what order they yeah. get to some degree. Yeah, so. there's not quite as much to think about as Britain in the third era as in the first in the second era, as I right. think. Exactly. So going back to the statement you made a little bit earlier, how it captured the feel because Napoleon loses. Right. At the start of this review, I said one of the pros that I thought for this game was this game absolutely nails the feeling of the Napoleonic Wars. Mm-hmm. One of my major cons is this game absolutely nails the feeling of the Napoleonic Wars. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> and so what I mean by that is I like it in war games when they capture that feeling of that conflict, but you feel like you can rewrite history. Mm-hmm. So in Twilight Struggle, you can make things happen that did not happen. Mm-hmm. And it is very viable. In this game, France is going to be killer in Era 1. Mm-hmm. British is going to be weak. It's going to equalize in Era 2. And then France is going to be just holding on for dear life. And Britain is going to be killing it in Era 3. Right. And I cannot see how every game will not follow that exact same pattern from here to infinity. I just don't see how that 
pattern will change. Now, from getting to point A to point C, there's subtlety there in the play of the cards and where you pick up points. I'm not saying I don't think it's possible for France to win. I'm just saying I feel like the game will always follow that predictable narrative pattern. Sure. Which may make it feel samey over time. Oh, yeah. If that makes sense. True. I 100% agree with that. But I feel like, especially looking around this room with a thousand <laughs> games in it, there will be a time that you say, hey, I'm in a mood for a Napoleon War game. And mm-hmm. this would be a Napoleon War game. So, sure. so I can see having it in your library just to have that feel. Because yeah, sure. you're right. This isn't one that would come out regularly, yeah, I would say. For sure. All right. Well, ready to move on to the final overall thoughts? impressions and grade here? Sure. I think you told me before we started recording that you insisted on me going yes, first, I, which I do. makes I, me I, wonder what you have to say. Well, as we've talked about this, I thought I had an opinion of what your opinion was on this game, and now I no longer have an opinion <laughs> on the game. <laughs> Let's see if I surprise you. Yeah, yeah. All right, so for me, Victory and Glory Napoleon, I have mixed feelings on this game. I will say that I really enjoyed my plays of this game. I really did. The game feels big feels epic, grandiose, really captures the Napoleonic feel, but again, almost to a fault. I do worry that when I play this game in the future, I'm going to know too much what to expect and that I feel like I know how the narrative of the game is going to flow. Now, within that, I think there are some really cool card play mechanisms at hand to where you can find ways to get ahead of your opponent and try to be victorious. Although I do also feel like France is at a disadvantage in this game. So I guess what I'm saying here is I think there are lots of good things going on here. But I think there are some negative things here that are pulling this game back from being excellent to just being good. I want to give this game a four. I liked the game. I enjoyed it. I would play it again. I'm going to keep it. Uh But there were just a couple of things that were holding it back from really greatness, to be honest. I think this game had the potential to be phenomenal. Right. And it needed a little bit more playtesting is where I've kind of come down to on this one. I I think we kind of hit on that point. And it's fun for a specialty time. I'm in the mood for a Napoleonic War kind of thing, but it's Mm -hmm. probably not going to come out. Yeah, I I can get that. All right, Bill, what do you think? Uh, Well, for me, I really enjoyed the seesaw nature and the rise of the Brits and the fall of France, especially as we watched that unfold together (laughs) for the first time was just awesome to me. It was. It was just very, very cool. I would gladly play Napoleon again. I think it's really cool, and I do think it's got some blemishes, but I would even play it as Napoleon just because I think he's got hope and there could be a way to make it work. But I give it a five. Ah, nice. I I had wondered. I could tell you. You really enjoyed this one a lot and i can see that like i said it was close for me right there were just a couple things holding me back but i enjoyed this one a lot as well i'm curious what did you think that i was going to say i thought you were going to give it a lower number actually ah uh, but as we talked i felt like you were going to give it a higher number but yeah. i thought you were going to give it a three based on our place right okay. right yeah. right but chris is pretty good at holding his opinion close to his chest i but. do i try to and i think this drives people crazy because a lot of times when people aren't enjoying a game they don't want to hear it but a lot of times i play devil's advocate for a game even if i don't believe it right, you right. Know? or if i feel like somebody's over the moon for a game i'll be like well this was kind of crappy and <laughs> i don't know this kind of sucked you know because I, I one i like people to think about it and two i like to throw people off from what i'm thinking so right i guess i succeeded in that regard but you did you did you surprised no, i me liked it yeah, you should borrow this sometime, Bill. Play with your brother or something. Yeah. Yeah, no. yeah, yeah y'all, y'all would probably enjoy that, I think. I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, think, I think he'd like it, too. Low buried entry. Right. Nice. Well, that's our thoughts on Victory and Glory. If you're interested in purchasing this game, it's a little rare. You might have a hard time. There are three copies on BGG, so do it now if you sound interested. I think there's some on eBay, too, but, man, it's a rare game for sure. I will point out that after we played it, I bought it on Steam because there is an exact name copy with the same art called Victory and Glory Napoleon on Steam for a PC download, and it is not the same game. Yeah, it's not the same game. Yeah, interestingly, a little history on this game. This game went through multiple iterations and changes, actually, between Kickstarter funding and Kickstarter fulfillment. Apparently, the game looked much more like the computer game did. Oh, okay. Yeah, and they changed a lot. So this game had a really weird progression. All right, those are our thoughts on Victory and Glory, Napoleon. All right, well, that was fun, Bill. Enjoyed that. That was fun. Two-player session. Great games, great discussion, good stuff. Look forward to doing it again. Yeah, man, I'll be here. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining us for this two-player showdown episode of Hidden Gems. If you like what we're doing here, please remember that it's a huge help to us if you would please leave us a rating or review on your podcast platform of choice. 
and follow us on our various social media platforms. Check out the BGG Guild if you want to interact with us or share a game you think is a hidden gem. And if you're so inclined, you can also support the show financially by becoming a patron over at patreon.com forward slash hidden gems podcast, where you can get access to exclusive content, coupon codes, and more. Or by picking up an HG logo tee on our website at hiddengemsboardgamepodcast.com forward slash store. Until next time, I'm your host, Chris. And this is Bill. Thanks for listening. This episode of Hidden Gems, number 24, was recorded in Raleigh, North Carolina on January 9th, 2022. Join us again in two weeks when we dive into Cube Rails genre and highlight a trio of games by enigmatic board game designer John Bohr. Hidden Gems is produced and edited by Chris Alley, Cameron Lockie, and Jason Yonsela. Our board game guild is monitored and managed by honorary Hidden Gems team member Ghidorah. Our show's logo is illustrated by designer and artist Caitlin Nieto. Check out her work on Instagram at It's Caitlin Nieto. We'd love to hear from you. Feel free to join our discussion on our many social media accounts. You can find us on Facebook at Hidden Gems Board Game Podcast, Instagram at Hidden Gems.podcast, and Twitter at Hidden Gems Board disagree with one of our reviews have something you want to say about one of the games we discussed today you can also make your voice heard on our board game geek guild at boardgamegeek.com guild 3874 once again thank you for joining us on hidden gems and until next time fellow gem seekers enjoy your games and enjoy your search and highlight a trio of games in in an attic in an in an restart that sentence (laughs) wow Enigmatic. Enigmatic. I'm usually usually enigmatic. (laughs) Join us again in two weeks when we dive into Cube Rails genre and highlight a trio of games by Enigmatic. Oh, boy. (laughs) Join John Orr. Enigmatic. It's going to start over. (laughs) We we thought it was going to be Yashalov, but no, I didn't know you couldn't say Enigmatic. You would think I could. I'm just so good at Enigmatic. Okay, take three. Credit reading rights are hereby revoked. <laughs> wow, enigmatic. What's wrong with enigmatic? Dude, that's the best you said it. I oh, know, enigmatic. Just now. I oh, know, enigmatic.